0: Familiarity breeds contempt, so the saying goes and certainly there are passages of Scripture that we think we know so well that we quote them, usually incorrectly and almost certainly out of context. And that's the way that Christians usually make their decisions, incorrectly and out of context. We're a marvellous bunch of people. Those who pull the texts out altogether and just quote them to you are the worst of all. Those who dangle rosary beads in front of you and treat them as though they were in fact the word of life are worse than the people who look at the word of life and revere it as though it doesn't need to be interpreted. So everybody, as far as I'm concerned, is wrong, except of course me. So I'm gonna share with you what I've learned about going wrong. This fantastic story of Jesus by the Lake of Galilee or the Sea of Tiberias is a typical story from John's gospel. John, the writer of the fourth gospel called a non-synoptic gospel because it doesn't have a synopsis that's the same as the other three. Matthew, Mark, and Luke write about the same things in almost the same way. But of course, like you and me, they would put down what they remembered from this sermon this morning which is probably one line so they'd be a great success with that wouldn't they? So here we are with John's gospel. John's gospel is the final gospel to be written and it reflects upon the content of the other Gospels that's what it does. It's almost a profound theological treatise on Matthew and Mark and Luke. If you look at it that way you'll begin to understand it. It's also Typical of a man writing at a later period or a group of men writing and and women writing at a later period in which what's happening is there's a distillation of the teaching of Jesus Christ. And there's certainly an understanding of Greek and Roman philosophy that is not in the content of Matthew and Mark and Luke. They're about something completely different. They're on fire with the experience of Jesus Christ and what he did to them how he upset them, how he changed them, how they became different people. For John, it's more withdrawn, more reflective. He likes to write a poem about creation at the beginning. He reflects about the passion almost dispassionately. And it's a much longer gospel. A gospel of signs. A gospel of signs. An outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. If you ever learnt your catechisms, if you're that old, and I certainly am, you'll know that you had a question and answer session in which somebody said, what is a sacrament? And a sacrament is, and then you'd reply, an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace, which actually has it in a nutshell, doesn't it really? Unless you don't understand it at all. And here we are with a sign. These people have followed Jesus because they saw signs. They saw outward manifestations of the love of God, and they were deeply impressed, and they went after this young Jew, following him around from sign to sign, from healings, from corrections. They liked him, of course, because he had a go at the religious establishment. Who doesn't? Jesus was the rebel, who took people by storm and reminded them of the love of God by the signs that he did. That's John's Gospel. And here we have one of the great signs that we take for granted. Jesus is by the Sea of Tiberius. He knows a lot of people are following him. He's performed a healing, several healings, in the villages around the top of the Sea of Galilee and people have followed him because of what they've seen. There's a dynamic in him that they want to share. And what happens? Jesus goes up a mountainside and sits down with the disciples and we're told the Jewish Passover festival was very near. So it was a deeply religious period of time when people might be more sensitive to some of the things he was going to say. This is no fool, this Jesus. He knows what he's doing. Jesus looks up having been engrossed with the disciples because they're so thick, he has to keep telling them the same thing over and over again. You know what that is, don't you? Like you talking to a clergyman. Or is it a clergyman talking to you? I can't remember. When Jesus looked up, he saw a great crowd coming towards him. What does he do? He doesn't say, oh God, let's go, let's disappear from here, I've had enough of this. No, he says to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Compassion. He knows they're going to be hungry. They've been walking around with him for a long time. Why does he ask Philip? Do you know why I asked Philip? He asks Philip because he lives there. He's the local boy. He wants to know where the local Tesco is. Where can he buy for all these people? That's the question. It's exactly what it says. Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Philip. And Philip says, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread. Wonderful. A disciple's answer. Typical. Oh, it may take more than. Oh, I haven't got an answer, Jesus. I don't really know. He moans. And of course, what he does is he doesn't answer the question. The question from Jesus Christ is, Where shall we find? And he answers, How we will find. Completely wrong answer to the question. Completely wrong. So, like most of us, isn't it? Or oh, I include myself, of course, not you. So, like most of us. Philip says, We haven't got enough money to buy. So, he immediately says, There's a problem, Lord. He doesn't solve the problem. He doesn't help Jesus think. He says, Oh, no, Lord, no, no. It takes too much. It won't do at all. Another of his disciples, Andrew, fiery Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. He has another good answer. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will that go around? So he comes up with a kind of suggestion. What he doesn't say is, Lord, we've got in our baskets quite a lot. Why don't we get it out and share it? Isn't it fantastic? It's the little boy he points to. Yet again, somebody else carries the buck. I mean, it's unbelievable, these disciples. I don't know how we continue. Jesus says, okay, I've heard enough from both of you. Make the people sit down. Those of you who know me well will know that I think that this is the miracle of the story. Make the people sit down. How do you make 5,000 people sit down on a hillside? How do you do it? By a process of communication in which each person trusts each other and says, he's saying, sit down, sit down. And they want to hear what's got to be said so they sit down so the miracle has happened they're all together and they're all listening their ears are open their hearts are open make the people sit down we're told there's plenty of grass so it was soft for them no stones then jesus in front of them takes the he does, does what the apostle says he takes the little boys loaves and he lifts them up and he takes two small fish and he blesses them, and he holds them high, then he puts them down. And when he puts them down, there's enough for everybody to eat. It's not explained, but the result is, they all distributed enough, as much as they wanted, he did the same with the fish. Now whether you think, this showed the people unselfishness, and they all got their own hidden bits out and started to share. Or whether it was miraculous, as its gospel infers, is irrelevant. Something happened to those people as a part of Jesus Christ saying, get your act together, do something. Dig deep and find what you've got and share it. That's what he's saying. When they'd all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather what's left over Let nothing be wasted. And they took 12 baskets. It's a wonderful number in John's gospel, isn't it? 12 baskets, no accident. 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles. The sign is incredible. It goes on and on and the the depths are incredible. And after people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is coming to the world. And the prophet they meant was Moses on the hillside who saved Israel. That's what they were thinking it was. So from meager resources, there's a dynamism in Jesus Christ that sets people on fire with unselfishness and love. And the origin of it all is God who provides. So what is it about? Jesus is demonstrating in a practical way that if you trust God, The meager becomes abundant. The small amount you have is enriched. The few friends are doubled. Your meanness is turned into generosity. Your prejudice is overcome. Your faith is strengthened. And all from fishes and loaves. If you have the privilege, and I hope one day you will, of going to the Holy Land, you'll get around the Sea of Galilee, what's called the Enchanted Coast. The Enchanted Coast, it's fantastic. Lots of archaeological finds, you'd love that Emma, terrific place. And there is a 4th century church run by the Franciscans called Tabka, right by the Sea of Galilee very, very early, a sort of Byzantine dream house with a quadrangle, you go in from the heat into the coolness, and when you get up to where the holy table is, the altar, the mensa, the place of meeting, the place of breaking of bread, underneath is the oldest mosaic in northern Israel, and it's two barley loaves and fishes. Powerful, powerful, simple sign under the table. And when you're in there, you suddenly realize that what is happening when you're there is that people are being opened up, developed, their fears are being taken away, and it's the simplicity of the sign. So when you're dining at home tonight, or tomorrow morning at breakfast, and if you can eat bread, you take your bread out, your barley loaves and your fish or your bacon or your eggs or your cereal, give thanks to God for this sign of his abundance. And then ask yourself, who should I be sharing this with? Who should I be sharing this with? And if you keep your lug holes open, it's possible that God will tell you and I might call round, amen.